You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Welcome to the Real Vision Daily Briefing. I'm Ash Bennington. We are live without a net today. The grown-ups have all gone home for the week. It's just me, Jack Farley, and Max Weethy. Welcome, guys. Great to be here, Ash. Yep. <laughs> uh, so, guys, obviously, uh, today's Jobs Day. Uh, NFT number out. Jack, what are your thoughts? Did you just say NFT number? <laughs> yes, I did, Jack. Okay, so just to explain, NFP is non-farm payrolls. That's a jobs report. Ash is so in the crypto world, he's so focused on NF NFT, non-fungible token, he said NFT. Yeah. And by the way, I've spent years of my life working at a macro consultancy. It is like the emotional connection I feel to NFTs is overwhelming. But Jack, go ahead. Non-farm payrolls number, jobs day today uh, on Friday. Let's take a look at those numbers. What are your thoughts? Sure, Ash. Well, the non-farm payrolls number uh, was 916,000. That's the number of jobs that was added in the month of March, that was well above expectations, Ash. The median expectation from Bloomberg was 660,000. The whisper number just shy of 800,000. So um, it was a, a big surprise and a big beat um, that, yeah, it, it indicates strength of the US economy, no doubt. Yeah. Job growth continuing to grow uh, here in the United States, obviously, uh, off those terrible numbers that we saw at the height of the pandemic going back uh, some uh, 10 to 12 months ago at, at trough. Uh, and now we've seen this continual recovery, obviously, good news. Um, we should say, obviously, right now, for those watching, uh, there is an attack that just happened, a small uh, attack that has happened at the uh, US Capitol. Apparently, an individual uh, rammed uh, a police checkpoint at the US Capitol right now at this hour. Uh, NBC News is reporting that the suspect uh, has been killed, uh, and there may be additional injuries at the site. Uh, so with that said, um, and that rather grim opening to shift gears here to talk about things that are happening in the economy, which is what we're here to discuss. Um, Max Weethy, by the way, it's a pleasure to have you on this show. We don't usually get you out uh, on these live streams uh, for Real Vision Daily Briefing. It's a pleasure to have you here. You work uh, predominantly uh, on the plus tier at Real Vision, uh, thinking about some of the things, the um, content that is a little bit more uh, institutional in nature. I know you've been working on some interesting pieces these days. What's on your mind? Well, it, it's a good mix. Like we do have some institutional content, and some of the stuff that I'm working on that's more institutional is actually going to be on the essential tier. So it's a mixed bag for me. But uh, there's a piece coming out on Monday that I think is really interesting with a guy, Marcus Frampton, who runs the uh, Alaska Permanent Fund. So for those of you who don't know, Alaska, when they struck oil back in the '70s, they set up a sovereign wealth fund for the state. Which, considering we don't have one at the national level here in the U.S., seems a little foreign to people. I mean, he says in it like their structure is actually very similar to a state pension fund. But imagine that every single resident in the state gets a pension. Uh, so they pay out a dividend um, from that to the citizen. So every citizen of Alaska gets that. It's a really unique fund, but more unique than the structure of the Alaska Permanent Fund is the man running it. Um, and Marcus, their CIO, you know, he had a long career in private equity. Um, but he's one of the few CIOs who's really not buying into the massive private equity trend. He's bullish on gold. He's bullish on active management. 
bullish on macro hedge funds. I mean, he's really just like the opposite of what the institutional world is heading towards right now. And their returns have been pretty good, and and they've been able to to pay out that dividend pretty consistently um, over his tenure. So it seems to be uh, working at least for now. So I think it's a really interesting interview from a guy who also in his free time invests in microcaps. So like hmm. obviously the institutional world, they're not getting into that. So there's a section in it where he talks about like why he loves trading over the counter uh stocks. Um so he really is a man of many talents and uh that one's just a lot of fun. But you know, more than anything, going back to not what's happening on Real Vision, but the economy. But by the way, just to, I wanted to jump in because I wanted to ask you some questions about because I'm fascinated by the Alaska Permanent Fund. It's a very large fund. It's like seventy billion dollars, a uh, pretty significant amount of money. Uh, what is the what is the fund? What are the constituents of the fund? What's their investment philosophy? What do they invest in up there? So it's, I mean, they have it. It's a, it's an institutional portfolio. So they have certain things. Like there's a a part in the interview where he's like. We're invested in gold miners, and probably a hedge fund that is actively picking the best miners would be better. But to get that through the pipeline would be too difficult for us. So we just bought the ETF. So you know, you get to get a picture into like maybe how decisions are made in an institutional portfolio and and why certain things happen. Like he believes that this is the best investment decision for the state of Alaska. But he just in the time that it takes, you know, when he's like gold miners, I want to invest in them now. He probably couldn't get a hedge fund through the pipeline fast enough to catch that run up. So he's just buying an ETF. I mean, they have equity exposure. They have bond exposure. He talks about how you know a lot of people are saying like bonds are dead, bonds are just a drag. And so equity exposure is going up, um, but he's not cutting his bonds. So he's at about like 25% bond or fixed income, like carrying that pretty heavily. And then also active management. That's like another one of the things that stands out for them. So of their equity exposure, about 70% is active. Um, so, well, but he's a guy who, who likes microcap investing and doing individual name research. So you can tell where some of the stuff he does in his free time kind of comes into it and where a lot of allocators like him maybe don't have that experience. It's not the world they live in. Like uh, the interviewer, Sean Feeler, who is um, from, he actually runs a fund that's focused on gold miners. Ironically, the thing that... Um, that Marcus couldn't get uh, them into, but he he says like that's got to help you interviewing um, interviewing managers that you're allocating to. He's like, yeah, it definitely helps to be able to tell like who can really hack it uh, as a stock picker and stuff like that. So he's just a fascinating guy, and it, it it's it's an amazing fun. I mean, maybe if you're watching this from Norway, you're like boring. Like we've got sovereign wealth. Like don't talk to me about your Alaska fund. But here in the U.S., it's a really unique structure and and a really unique guy running it. Yeah. I, I'm sorry, I interrupted you. You were going to say you were shifting gears to talk a little bit more broadly. Well, the the economy, I mean, I love what I do here at Real Vision, and it's fun to get into that, but I'm sure some people want to hear about like what, what we're watching, what we think is is moving markets. And you know, I'm here in, in New York. It's Friday. I think next week, people in my age group are eligible for the vaccine. Uh, they just opened up to anybody over 30. You no longer have to be part of these special groups. I'm sure, Ash, I don't know, maybe you were already there. I don't want to ask you about your private medical conditions, but you know, anybody- Max, Ash is, Ash is under 30. He's like us. He's- Ash is under yeah, 30. Ash is under. This is the under thirty. So Ash, you just you're eligible next week to get the <laughs> vaccine. But we had a record number of vaccinations yesterday here in the U.S. at over four million people getting a dose of the vaccine. Uh, we're up over twenty five percent of the people have gotten at least one dose. I mean, it's it's really accelerating. We are seeing more people opening up, which just means 
there's the spots are going to be more filled. You've probably all heard stories about uh, you know vaccines going bad or people not showing up to their appointments and people who maybe aren't part of these special groups um, are like, hey, I, I really want to get vaccinated. Like, open it up to me. So I think that that's a trend to be watched as as summer comes around and we will see whether whether that really leads to the sort of, you know, summer explosion that a lot of people have been saying uh, yeah. is, is going to happen here in 2021 in combination with good jobs reports in combination with good vaccine reports. Um, I'm, I'm pretty sure to see how the market reacts to some of this bullish news. In combination with cannabis being legalized here in the financial hub of the United States. Not just legalized. They also, you can like if you go to certain like in California, not that they enforce this or anything like that, but you can't smoke on the street. You can't smoke outside. Well, here in New York, everybody, nobody has a yard. Um, and so they have legalized it anywhere where tobacco can be smoked. You can smoke cannabis. Yeah, so it will be uh, it, it won't change anything because it's basically already been like that here in New York. Anybody who's who's been here in the last few years probably recognizes that. But, Jack, you grew up here. So, you know, well, how how has the change been for you, seeing all this stuff happening here in New York? Uh, are you talking about marijuana legalization? Yeah. Like, what, Actually, what was it like? I mean, sorry, Max. I've got my eye on the bond market. I, I don't really. All right, we'll get back to this in a moment. But let's talk a little bit more about some of the uh, some of the big macro issues that we've got coming. By the way, to your point, Max, about the vaccine, I had uh, got my shot. Uh, my first shot about a week ago on Monday uh, down at the Jacob Javits Center. This is a huge convention center here. Uh, and it was a pretty impressive feat of logistics. Uh, and it, it made me feel pretty good uh, about being an American, actually, to see that we were able to pull something off on the scale. You have these terrific young people, young men and women in uniform, uh, who were directing traffic and kind of steering people around and checking papers and doing that kind of thing. Uh, and it just worked extraordinarily well. Uh, logistically, this is not a simple thing to do. Uh, it's something that's very challenging to do at scale. And it's something that it, it really is an impressive feat uh, that we've been able to not just develop the vaccine, this extraordinary uh, effort in 12 or 14 months. Uh, for some people, a year after they had the first heard about coronavirus, and they got their first vaccine. That's extraordinary uh, that we were able to not just create it, uh, test it, but also get it out to people logistically. An extraordinary feat uh, and one that continues to go on. Uh, and uh, obviously, there's this narrative that we were just touching on uh, in some ways about the potential for the growth uh, to continue to explode, the rebound effect. Uh, you see all of those NFP uh, numbers. Uh, Get the, all the uh, non-farm payrolls growing pretty dramatically, and this is uh, look. This is this is quite a rebound. We've been talking about this uh, reverse radical effect. Uh, the question is: Remember, if you thought think about economic growth as trend, we've come down. We've done this reverse radical. We've come back, but we're still not where we were. And more important, we're not where we would have been if we continued on trend. And that's one of the important things to think about, I think, as we take the non-farm payroll number into context. This is still an economy uh, that has been significantly impaired uh, by the shutdown uh, and, and by the self-shutdown, people not going out and not doing things uh, at the level that they would have otherwise. But to get back uh, to Jack's point, part and parcel of all of this from a macro framework perspective, is what's happening in the bond market? What was uh, the response in the bond market from today's jobs report? Yields rose, Ash. Yesterday they they um, sold up bonds sold off, but excuse me, bonds rallied and, and yields declined. But today bonds sold off, 
because investors were saying, you know, if the, if the economy is running so hot, why do I need a, a safe haven asset like a bond if I can go into equities? Now, the equity market was closed today, so there was no trading. However, the futures market was open, and the S&P 500 uh, futures, as you can expect it, I believe it was the June contract, surge on the news. So stocks liked the news because uh, stocks are a risk asset. They do well when the economy is doing well. Bonds, which are sort of a rainy day fund, if you will, you know, you want to hold them when uh, maybe the economy is not doing so well. They're negatively correlated to equities historically. Um, they sold off. So this you know, good economic news was good for the stock market, which again wasn't open, and bonds sold off. Interestingly, I saw that uh, euro dollars, which is basically what the market is pricing in for the, the future of interest rates. I think in 20 uh, December 2023, um, that the three-month bond. Um, it actually plummeted. So people are actually expecting that the Federal Reserve will have to increase rates because of this inflation. But then inflation goes back to the labor market. In unemployment, as you said, Ash, is now at 6%, uh, a drastic decline from, from where it was. But it really is still somewhat high. And it's really hard, no matter how much money is printed, to have inflation if unemployment is at 6%. Right. So just to summarize, job numbers comes back strong, uh, bonds sell off, Rates rise on uh, inflation fears. Uh, now you're saying this is what we're seeing also in the euro dollars market, which is effectively looking ahead to what's going to happen in fixed income. Uh, and the question now on the table, Jack, is what does the central bank do? It seems that Jay Powell's remarks have been dovish, the implication being uh, that they're talking about things like symmetric targeting of the rate, uh, meaning that they're going to let the economy run hot for a while. Anyone who's been betting on rates uh, rising has not done so well. What are your thoughts on that? Well, I think months ago, uh, Jay Powell said that he's not thinking about raising interest rates. He's not even thinking about thinking about raising interest rates. I take him at his word. I think short-term rates, the federal funds rate, is, uh, is pretty much pinned um, at the extremely low level it is today. However, what he says about the long end of the curve, which has been selling off, we had some bear steepening because people are saying, why do I want to own 30-year bonds if you know the economy is on fire? There, he's, he really has totally dodged the question of if he's going to enact yield curve control. He says, you know, uh, we're you know really not thinking about it. We're you know we're really focusing on structural unemployment. He basically dodged the question. So um, I think that is the most important thing. But uh, just to go back to something. Let, that me, actually, let me just add a little bit of context there for a second. So effective federal funds rate, this is the rate that the Fed controls directly. It uh, has been effectively at the zero bound now for some time. Uh, EFFR right now looks like uh, spot zero seven. 0.07, so effectively at the zero bound. What you're talking about is the rise in rates at the longer end of the curve, beyond 10 years, 10 to 30 uh, segment of the curve. Uh, this is something that is not in the direct control of the Federal Reserve to date in terms of the current policy tools. When we you hear the acronym YCC get thrown around, those are yield curve controls. This is the potential, potential for the central bank, for the Fed to step into the market and start buying at the longer end of the curve to push rates down. Uh, this is obviously something that we've never tried before here in the United States. We've done something called Operation Twist, uh, which was a balance sheet neutral uh, version of this, where you would buy at the longer end of the curve, but sell on the short end of the curve to offset it. Just to be clear, yield curve control, something that's very controversial, not yet been implemented in the United States, impact potentially unknown. Yeah, well, it was implemented in World War II, just historical caveat for you there, Ash. But I would like to talk about it in relation to a narrative from earlier in 2021, which was about the reason why yield curve control would have to be implemented was because rising yields were going to crash the stock market. Well, here we are, yields are rising, economy is running hot, and 
equities are at all-time highs. I mean, we're closed today, but futures went up. You could argue maybe people were hedging potentially Monday's open. Um, but all, all that being said, it's very clear that at this point, rising yields have not crashed, crashed the stock market to date. And I want to bring it back to Real Vision Content, which was the interview that aired today with Chris Cole and Mike Green. And they were talking about um, credit markets and how that is really the big thing, is the refinancing of debt. And that, well, which when when insolvency risk rises, that also affects equities because equities are uh, like an option on a call on the um, free cash flow above debt service. And so the idea is that as rates rise, it affects the ability of corporates to refinance their debt, whether they are the zombie companies that many people have been bemoaning or just other companies that have been levered up, whether because of coronavirus or the leverage that was running rampant before coronavirus. So really, yield curve control, until it affects people's ability to refinance, which affects the equity market, like why would they implement yield curve control? Is the Fed put really at 4,000? <laughs> you know, like, is that where the Fed put is struck these days? So all this talk about yield curve control, I think, was a little bit fast. Yeah, I think it was premature. By the way, uh, what uh, Max is alluding to here is this idea that uh, the Fed is uh, effectively targeting a rate, a, a level on the S&P 500, 4,000 obviously being one that we just crossed uh, fairly recently. I was actually just reading on the Liberty Street blog at the New York Fed uh, about the alleged uh, yield curve control during the 1940s. It seems a little bit uh, ambiguous to me, but we'll take a look into that. We'll continue that debate on platform. Plenty of people By the way, smarter than myself have said it happened, and I'm willing to trust them. I wasn't alive. There's no way for me to know. Nobody. I don't think anybody who was working at the Fed in World War II is alive. So we have to trust the history books. At and this by point. the way, for pe for people at home, I want to say it's not that the Federal Reserve has never bought bonds on the long end of the curve. It's yield curve control is specifically targeting targeting a rate and saying right. if the rate goes above that. It's Armageddon. I'm going to just buy as many bonds as we need to in order to keep it at that rate. Like we're yep. under now under quantitative easing or, or QE, um, and what the, what the what the Fed is doing now, which is minimum eighty billion dollars of Treasury per month. Often it's it's much more. It, they buy Treasuries on the long end. They're just really focused on that belly of the curve where you know a lot of corporate bonds and high yield bonds are in that duration. And the thirty year bond is well something of an afterthought. You know that there's the thirty year mortgage, which is dependent on that. But they're really focused on the belly of the curve. Whereas with um, you know yield curve control, they really would target um, to prevent a further bear steepening. That, as you say, Max, some people said, oh, it's going to get out of control. Um, the stock market S and P uh, 500 yesterday is at 4,000. Um, what are you going to do? As yields have risen, we haven't seen that weakness in the equity market. You've seen it in patches. Fang has um, you know been uh, weakening since then. High growth stocks like Tesla, DocuSign, Zoom, Peloton, they've been taking it on the chin. And I think that the people who said the stock market is going to do poorly, they were right about those stocks. What they didn't anticipate, Max Nash, I think, is just how well the reflationary names would do. Um, you know, your your airlines, your energies, your reopening stocks, your the Roaring Twenties stocks, which uh, you know, Max, you were talking about earlier. Can you guys both talk a little bit about the uh, this this rotation trade that we've been talking about uh, away from growth toward value? Whenever that uh, the data appears to turn, it can reverse. Give us a little bit of a context for people who aren't familiar with the reflation trade uh, as we've been discussing it. What that means and why it's significant, particularly for U.S. equity investors. Sure. Um, well, growth stocks uh, like let's take your Fang stocks, Facebook, Alphabet, Netflix, Google. They grow really quickly. And they are called secular growers. They can grow 
this, when the economy is not growing. In other words, there, there's a spread, but they can grow when the economy is not growing. Whereas a company like Exxon or um, a company like, let's say, American Airlines, they really are dependent upon the economy. So when the economy grows, they are lifted. Um, but if the economy does really poorly, then they don't do poorly well. So otherwise, they're, you know, tech stocks, which are growth stocks, which are uh, independent, really, of the growth cycle. And then there's cyclical stocks, which are dependent on the economic regime. So when things, you know, when she hits the fan, um, pretty much, your growth stocks actually do better because they can grow um, despite a strong economy. However, the strong economy that we're witnessing, Ash, before our eyes over the past three months, this you know, great economic data after great economic data, that actually is bad for uh, you know, the growth stocks, um, like the FANGs, right. as well as your, you know, your, um, your, your tech stocks. Yeah, but I mean, that begs that. the question, is it the yields or is it the, the, the relative attractiveness of the other options that are out there? as growth comes? Like, is it really, the narrative was that yields are affecting the discounted cash flow model, like as rates rise, these earnings out in the future are less attractive, or is it just that we're getting bullish economic data and thus these stocks, which are much more dependent on the health of the economy for them to see earnings growth are, are more attractive. It's, it's the opportunity cost of owning one versus the other, not that one is being crushed by a one point seven one percent ten year yield. Sure, but Ash, the reason that the one point seven ten year yield has risen uh is because people are, are bullish on the economy. So they, they are very related. Yeah. By the way, Max, you are correct. Apparently, in April of 1942, the rate had a hard cap, the Fed capped uh, at two and a half percent at the 25 uh year duration, which I think was the longest end of the curve uh, in the 1940s. And that existed uh, until inflation started to rise in 1947. So it appears it is uh, within the technical definition of YCC. Yeah, yeah, it was to fund the war. And then we had like what, like one of the greatest economic expansions of all time. Something, hey, something guys, like that. Got, we got a question. We got a question from Bob. Bob, very relevant question. It says, how high do you think 10-year treasuries have to rise until the market pukes? So if you watch the video with Chris Cole and Mike Green on Real Vision today, they talk about that if we get to the rates that we had in the mid-2000s, that cuts corporate earnings by one-third. Um, and there's some even, and that's like a best case scenario. It doesn't get into the zombie companies that can't, that are, that can't even afford to, uh, can barely afford to service their debt now. It doesn't get into the companies that rely on refinancing to keep this debt going. So that's just kind of like the number. So go back and look at, um, at that, at that number back into, I, I, I don't have an idea of where, sorry, I was eight. Um, I don't know where, maybe Ash can help us. What, what were, what were interest rates in, in 2000 and, Four two thousand and five. Uh, at which at which duration? Let's just go with this ten year yield. So let's take a look. I avoid eyeballing things when I don't have to. Um, You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with lips and ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. So, in, uh, in the year 2000, uh, rates on the 10 year uh, were at approximately 6%. 6%. Right. Okay. 
It's an important benchmark for us to think about as we think about just the, you know, as we we discuss these, you know, these these rises uh, and that are relatively significant on a short term. Uh, the bottom line is these are massive, massive spreads uh, away from where we were just 20 years ago. And the long term average, I mean, one of the most one of the most stable charts in all of macroeconomics is just look uh, at a, a 40 year chart uh, of the US 10 year Treasury yield, and it just continues. It's a ski slope from the top to the bottom. Um, you think about this the, the peak of interest rates uh, in the United States uh, around 1980, 1981, uh, around 11%, uh, and coming down um, you know, close to zero. This is an extraordinary, extraordinary decline. Uh, and if you're trying to calculate something like a long-term average, uh, there's this the weird sort of mathematical basis for this. As the as you continue to expand uh, the window, it just keeps getting higher and higher because you're pulling in older data that was from the higher base effect. So uh, you know the, the the most durable thing that you can say about this curve uh, is that there's just been a significant continual roll down uh, in rates in the United States dating back some 40 years. Yeah, it's it's pretty it's a pretty clear trend. That's why Rao calls it the the chart of truth. And there there are guys in the the whole saying about you know the bond guys are the smartest guys in the room. I mean, they did just have the greatest trade of all time that they could just ride for a you know forty year career. If you started in finance in the eighties in the bond department, it's pretty uh it's a pretty good deal there. Yeah, last print I just saw on uh, UST ten is one point seven percent. Yep. So we still have a ways to go before we even get close to that number. And I think they said the average in this Mike Green, Chris Cole interview. And I mean, I I pulled it up here. Like that six number was relatively high. If you basically take two thousand until the financial crisis, I think we were maybe around like four percent most of the time. But that's still a ways to go. Um, four and a yeah, half. I get, guys, but I'm, saying, I'm suggesting that how can you really say what the long term average is when the trend just looks like this? You go from up here to down here. So the long term average, it just depends where you place that window, right? Like you pick your time horizon and you can pick your uh, you can pick your rate because this isn't something that had a, a stable kind of horizontal line. It's just been sloping down uh, for that entire forty year period. So yeah, I, I want to connect all these conversations. I feel uh, there's interest rates, which is what you're talking about. Interest rates have secularly declined, and then there are credit spreads. So when you buy an investment Correct. grade bond, uh, a high yield bond, you're buying the interest rate, and then you're buying the credit spread on top of that. With high yeah. yield obviously having a higher credit spread. And Max, what I watched your interview or uh, the interview that Chris Cole had with Mike Green, one thing that struck out to me is how when credit spreads blow out, that is a precursor of equity markets blowing out. And I was just doing a, you know, a little bit of uh, research on this data platform um, that I have gotten before. And it turns out um, that the S&P 500 is extremely sensitive to credit spreads. The NASDAQ is less sensitive to credit spreads. Why is that the case? Right. Well, because the NASDAQ is chock full of growth companies that aren't dependent on bank financing. They don't really need a loan. You know, Apple is saying, hey, our problem is we have too much cash, not too little. That's not a problem. But if you're an energy company, I mean, that really is a sector that is driven uh, by, by debt and cheap financing. So I think credit spreads have been extremely um, low. They're, they're you know, very close to their pre-pandemic um, levels, and that's largely because of the Fed. Uh, so even though, and this I found this interesting, I know I've talked about this before, since um, August of last summer, if you had owned long-duration treasuries, you'd be down about 18 to 20% because yields have spiked. And 
those uh, you know long duration bonds are very sensitive to interest rate spiking. If you Jack, own- do you personally do you personally know that eighteen to twenty percent number for some reason? <laughs> I. I, I don't- well, uh, I actually I know it from a chart, but um, yeah, I mean I, I have you know tried my hand at TLT, and uh, yeah, it it has not been a good trade. I, I admit it. Um, so, but LQD, uh, which is has a which has about seven year duration, that is down about seven percent. And HYG high yield um, bonds have actually done the best because credit risk has not been a problem at all. But yeah, yields have risen, so they have the least exposure. So I just found that interesting. Yeah, this is a fascinating point, Jack, and really a spot on one. Uh, so LQD, of course, uh, is the investment grade uh, ETF, uh, ETP, I guess I should say, exchange traded product. Uh, it's a note. Um, but you know what's interesting about this is the point that you make about credit spreads. So although yields have marched down very steadily uh, for over a four-year time horizon, there's been tremendous variability in the spreads uh, between investment grade. Uh, and high yield, and also uh, between the benchmark rates on the 10-year Treasury and high yield. This is the fluctuation uh, of perception in the creditworthiness uh, of the U.S. corporate sector. Uh, and when you say that there has not been, uh, there's not, there's been no challenge uh, with those yield spreads. I mean, effectively, what that means right now. Uh, here in 2021 uh, is that it's been Fed intervention, uh, injecting not just liquidity uh, via the traditional monetary transmission channel of lowering rates and expanding the balance sheet, but also the so-called 13-3 programs of the Fed, uh, directly injecting liquidity into the markets by buying uh, by buying corporate treasuries. And that's compressed the spreads rather dramatically, but that's not a function of market perception of credit risk. That's a function of central bank intervention, and it's an important point uh, for people to understand who are thinking about this, because ultimately, uh, that policy action needs to be unwound as the economy begins to ramp up. So you have different factors moving in different directions uh, as this reopening trade takes place, uh, as you see sectoral rotation, uh, and as you see uh, the continued job growth, the reversal of the job loss might be a better way of saying it. It sounds a little bit more negative that way, but that's more uh, certainly closer uh, to the reality that we've seen from this devastating devastating uh, event. Well, and Ash, there's another factor in there, which is with treasuries giving you almost nothing. I mean, we're up to 1.7%. I don't know what the, the real yield is. I think it's still um, negative at this point. It's also the market's supply and demand dynamics for yield. And so, as much as credit spreads are always touted as like the credit worthiness, there's the, the Fed intervention aspect of it. And there's the actuarial, you know, institutions' pensions. They need to hit their targets, and if they can't get it from a treasury, they're going to have to go up. And even though investment grade is supposed to be relatively safe, that's where they're going to go. They're going to go where they can get a little bit more yield. And so there's other dynamics beyond just the creditworthiness, which are driving spreads lower. That, that's important. And uh, guys, I actually encountered something today which blew my mind. I was looking at the uh, one month implied volatility of HYG, or the, uh, the high-yield ETF. Implied volatility is basically saying, how much does the market think this is going to move to the upside or to the downside? And I encountered the chart over the, I put it over the past one year, and then I said, hey, that shape looks familiar. And it's, it's an exact match with the actual high-yield credit spreads. So in other words, as credit spreads have been going down, and people have been saying, oh, hey, high-yield is a good place to go. Uh, the market, in terms of pricing where it's going to go, in terms of um, you know you know downside risk, really is not at all worried. So it, you have this reflexive thing where the lower yields, excuse me, the lower spreads go, the less worried people are. Yeah. Here's a question that comes to us uh, from our audience from M. Cook. Uh, how did the Fed determine the two percent rate number? What's behind the math? Hypothetically, if the Fed was to pick 
the 10-year for YCC, what would happen if the five-year or 30-year were to rise? Uh, obviously, those are two different questions. Yeah. Uh, but who wants to jump in and talk the, about? Uh, the first one's easy. It's um, the 2%, uh, the, it's not a target of, of rates, it's a target of inflation. inflation. Um, and to be honest, I, I don't know. I, I think um, it is probably based on something related to the Phillips curve, which is the relationship between inflation and employment. People saying, oh, when, un when, uh, when um, you know, unemployment is extremely low and there's so much employment, uh, inflation happens. So there typically was thought to be that relation. So 2% um, was sort of chosen as that happy medium, I think. Well, 2% is also the new 3%. So for a while, 3% was the number, but then they were couldn't hit that. And so it's also a credibility number. Like if you can't generate any inflation and you're supposed to be targeting 3%, you look like you have no control. But 2% and you're like, oh, we're just a little bit short, it makes you look a little bit more uh, omnipotent. Um, so I would... I I love Max's uh, cynical game theory interpretation of the 2% uh, target. I think, you know, for inflation targeting the general, I'll give you a little bit of a general framework that may not be, um, it's just a little bit more broad. So obviously, uh, the it's well known what the risk uh, of inflation is in an economy when prices begin to rise very quickly. Uh, obviously, it's a massive tax on everyone in the economy. It's a tax on wage earners, uh, and it's especially a tax on debtors. Uh, so the thinking uh, in, in how you determine that, and I'll, I'll talk a little bit more technically in a second, uh, but th that's the big picture. Obviously, we all know why inflation is a bad thing. The flip side uh, is why prices, when they fall too low uh, or continue to trajectory downward, becomes problematic. Uh, and that is about the risk of the paradox of thrift. The paradox of thrift is the idea that when uh, economic uh, impairment is coming, that people begin to hoard their cash. And the challenge with this, of course, uh, is that that um, is that that your revenue is my payroll. So if people stop spending money, you see this processional effect that can happen uh, throughout the entire economy. One of the reasons uh, why some economists, in a very non-technical way, talk about that two percent inflation target is because the fear uh, of deflation is such a risk in the in the post World War II economy uh, that the Fed has targeted this rate. This is just the argument. I'm not saying that I agree with it. Uh, this, that the Fed has targeted uh, a rate to ensure that the economy does not slip. Uh, into deflation because the effects of it can be so potentially catastrophic. Uh, the point that Jack was talking to, uh, which is spot on uh, about the Phillips curve, there's something called uh, NERU, the non-accelerating inflation rate of unemployment. And the Fed historically obviously has a dual mandate uh, to target on the one hand stable prices and maximum employment. Maximum employment is generally viewed through the context or through the lens of NERU, the non-inflation accelerating rate of unemployment. That's effectively where the balance comes from. It is a Phillips curve related thing. Uh, you can debate uh, how precise that math is. Uh, I guess a cynical way of saying it was like, yeah, 2%. It's just a little bit. Just make sure we don't fall into deflation. But that's a bit of the thinking. Uh, and if you'd like more information, the Phillips curve and the Nehru uh, articles that are up on uh, St. Louis Fed are very good places to start. Yeah. And uh, um, Ash, you'd think that the maximum rate of employment would be 100%, but actually it's not. It's not. Well, and that's another thing about when people say, you know, the Fed's going to have to raise rates. They've been pretty clear. They have a dual mandate. One is to to price stability is what they call it, which is the two percent 
Think of it, the 2% inflation as price stability. That's not prices going nowhere. That's not prices going crazy. That's that's stable enough for them to, to avoid deflation, to inflate away some of the debts that everybody has um, and to generate growth. But then the other side of that is this maximum employment, which is not 100%. But you know, 6%, like it's better than where we were in the depths of COVID, but it's still, right. I mean, compared to where we were, it's very far away from maximum it, employment. And although things are looking good, we're not seeing the rapid acceleration that we were, you know, when we were coming out of the depths of hell. And yeah. so that is the main thing that people who say the market is getting ahead of itself on these rate hikes would probably cite is how far we are away from maximum employment and the rocky road that we have to get there. Yeah, spot on. Important points from both of you, and definitely on uh, not definitely not one hundred percent. And to Max's point, uh, stable prices are not prices that are not uh, rising. It is just not rising at a rate that is problematic in the view of the central bank. So obviously, those are very controversial topics. There are people who would uh, love to argue the other side of the issue, especially on the Austrian side, um, which perhaps Max is the segue that we were looking for uh, to talk about what is happening in the digital asset space right now. Well, I did before we get into digital assets. I just want to get to the second part of M. Cook's question, which is about yeah. if the Fed was to pick the ten-year for YCC. Well, it's the yield curve. It's not the ten, it's not ten-year yield control. It's yield curve control. So the question about like what happens if the five they're they're targeting them all. They're targeting every spot on the curve, and so yeah. they're supposedly all not rising. And then if you look at Japan, who has implemented yield curve control, it's that if the market buys. That yield curve control is happening, you actually have to do less because there's less action in the bond market because there's no money to be made on fluctuating prices. Like money is made in volatility. There's no volatility. There's no money to be made. There's not as much people trading that, and thus Japan actually has to do less yield curve control because. Uh, and, and they've made some changes. I don't want to go down like into like right. the Japanese banking policy changes that have come out recently this month. But that's to, to finish M Cook's question. But Ash, what was your question? No, I was just going to say, long-term, big picture, the last 20 years in Japan have not been uh, anything that the United States wishes to emulate. And um, you know what yield curve control means, effectively, uh, at, at least in its strongest form implementation, uh, that market forces no longer control interest rates at any point in the curve. Yep. Um, but Ash, what was your question well about said. digital assets? Yeah, let's go to digital assets. Speaking yeah. Volatility. Yeah, I mean, I listen. You know, based on my Freudian slip at the beginning of this show, what I've been thinking about for the last uh, two weeks, pretty much nonstop. So, what Ash, was the closing price? Uh, is that of the Ash Bennington SP? Oh, oh, on the Ash. I thought you were. I thought you were punning on the fact that crypto markets uh, trade twenty-four by seven. It oh, appears oh. that the red mic number one. My name is not in the title, by the way. Uh, the closing price on the meme that someone, uh, uh, John Amatuli, actually one of our subscribers, put together uh, a, a meme uh, that he turned into an NFT. It's a picture of me uh, wearing a T-shirt that says "aggressively neutral," uh, and uh, it appears that the closing price on that was three hundred and ninety dollars, or max for you, zero point one nine ETH. Okay. All right. Well, Ash, I guess what I want you to do right now is convince me that NFTs are not hot garbage. Please. <laughs> Please. For me, like I'm I'm going to try and be open-minded, but I'm of the I'm of the mind that NFTs are this is so early. Like I get it, the whole idea that we will live in a digital world and that people will interact, but I think, you know, the chips in the brain first. Then NFTs, like that's well, more. 
chips like, in the brand. Chips in the brand. There's no secondary market for that, Jack. I mean, I know there's no sec. I know I'm saying that until we live in a world where like you actually want like everybody like right. it's better to be in the digital world and we all like go home after work and plug in or we even go to work like plugged in like then right. I see then I see it but I I don't see it when going to a great restaurant in Manhattan and a club is still like better than anything you can do in the digital world um like until that until that experience has been surpassed by the digital world and the things that the richest people in the world want to do are in the digital world I don't see the NFT thing like people still until digital skiing is better than going to real Stad, then I, I don't see it. Like that. I think that needs that bridge needs to be crossed first. That's my take. Convince me why I'm wrong. Listen, that's a fair take. I think a lot of people saw, uh, for example, the Beeple NFT uh, at sixty nine million dollars. And there was a lot there were a lot of people scratching their heads. Uh, about precisely that number, right? I think it was a pretty extraordinary uh, number. And I'll get back to that in a second. But the first thing I would probably say, Max, is what are NFTs, right? What are NFTs and why why do they matter? Why are they significant? So an NFT, big picture, Bitcoin, Ethereum, most of the uh, most of the coins that we think about when we think about cryptocurrency are fungible. What fungible means is that any two units are equal. This is a very simple concept to understand. The language is a little fancy, but the concept is really simple. Max, if you have a hundred dollar bill in your pocket and I have a hundred dollar bill in my pocket, and we switch them, there's no economic difference between it. You're happy to take my hundred dollar bill. I'm happy to take yours. There's no distinction. So Bitcoin and Ethereum are fungible in that sense. All the tokens, all the coins are absolutely equal in every way. What makes an NFT an NFT is that they are non-fungible. Every NFT has a digital fingerprint on it that makes it effectively unique, and it's cryptographically verifiable in a decentralized way. Uh, and what that means is that you can tell one NFT from another NFT by virtue of verifying it on a network. There's no central party in charge. So what an NFT really is, it's not just about people getting 69 million bucks uh, for a painting. It is about an entirely new technology, an entirely new category of asset uh, where we can do incredibly interesting and different things. I think it's super fun uh, that someone just bought and an, you know, an NFT with, with you know, my dopey face on it uh, for 390 bucks. But that's not really what it's about. That's a bit of sort of harmless amusement. That's not really what this revolution is about. What this revolution is about is the ability to take uh, any asset anywhere in the world and programmatically have it be associated to value and to do it in a way where you can generate additional units uh, in a way that's stable, reliable, predictable, and verifiable. So what we're seeing right now uh, with regard to the collectible edition, sort of you could call it Crypto Kitties 2.0. Uh, that's really not what NFTs are about. That's a, a kind of a peripheral use case. That's an edge case that that people are are participating in now because it's a little bit fun and it's a little bit silly. Uh, and when people make someone makes sixty nine million dollars uh, for a piece of art, uh, obviously people take notice. Two things I would say about Beeple's uh, piece. First of all, it's a really interesting piece as far as art goes. Uh, you know, it's a, it, he took photographs uh, every day for many years and he aggregated them all together on this token. So it really is an interesting piece. But the second thing I would say uh, is uh, in uh, in nineteen fourteen, uh, almost uh, one hundred seven years ago today, um, a French painter named Marcel Duchamp entered a uh, a uh, into a show uh, a piece that he called Fountain, and Fountain was a urinal that he had written the word Armut 
on. Uh, and there's a huge the controversy, yeah. a huge controversy about it. The original was lost. Uh, a replica of it now hangs in the Tate Modern. It's a seminal piece of modern art uh, viewed by collectors. The art market has always been bizarre, right? It's an unusual place because there are really interesting and creative things that are happening there. People are pushing boundaries. They're doing interesting things. So when you see that $69 million number for the Beeple piece, I would say take it in the broader context, not just uh, of everything that's happened in the token market, but also everything that's happened in the art market, which is a world that, frankly, I'm not a participant in, right? I know a little bit about it, and the history is really fascinating. But that sort of tells you, listen, this is not uh, this is not the world of the asset world that we live in. Um, so. I would say those two things are really the key points to understanding it. We can talk a little bit more about some of the use cases for what you could do uh, with NFTs. But basically, I would say don't look at these uh, the headline number on the 69 million bucks for the people piece uh, or the you know pe that why would anyone want to spend 390 bucks for an aggressively neutral token as the use case for what these really are because I concede and I agree in fact that you know it's it it can get a little silly number one and number two obviously it's incredibly hard to price uh, these things in a way that corresponds with some identifiable use case or cash flow you're a podcast listener and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Ash, uh, I've, I've just, I know Max has got a lot to say, but um, well, one, I just want to say, Ash, when you say it's $69 million, like I just, you know, I automatically always, I always think in ETH. So I always have to go back to dollars because I'm so used to thinking in a yeah, sure. But but uh, on a serious note, I have to say to everyone who is watching on the Real Vision Daily Brief YouTube channel, um, please like and subscribe to us, and you can see all these um, episodes that come out every day. And also just check out go to realvision.com. You know, if you're someone who you like financial markets, you're very interested in it, you follow the stock market, you read the Wall Street Journal, you know, you watch financial TV. Like, you know, th this Real Vision is the place where. It, it, if you really want to learn what's really going on, you go. And I'd say, like the interview that you know Max worked on with Mike Green and Chris Cole. Like, if you watch that interview, I don't know how long it is—fifty minutes. Like, that really will educate you more than a lifetime of uh, CNBC. But now that I got that plug out of the way, Max, <laughs> uh, talk talk about uh, respond to Ash. But it, I would. Say Ash that it does matter that the perception is not on the non like the idea of non fungible tokens in their like most theoretical framework and like how once we have a full developed digital ecosystem you know that's totally different like I'm I'm all on board with with the fact that that these technologies are going to create new opportunities in the future right in the future being key there like people are spending ridiculous amounts of money on the idea that they're investing in that future now, which right. is not potentially not the case. And look, and you can talk about the art market. I can talk about like the baseball card market, like right. things get hot and they blow up and you know, it's, they don't, people don't have the same, it's, it's kind of generational. Like as people, as people grow out of it, like it's exciting to us because we're alive in this moment in time and it means something to us because we've seen this revolution. But, uh, you, you know, the the market for Howdy Doody merch is about to fall off a cliff. 
because nobody who is alive to watch Howdy Doody is going to be alive to buy that shit. So, you know, that's that's what I'm saying. Like we for us, it matters because we're in this moment in time and we can see it all happening. But until that there is this thing and it exists forever in in in, in continuity, I, I don't really I don't really see it. Well, let me give you my let me give you my two favorite use cases. I think those are fair points. But I, I would say that Max, that argument, the way you've structured it, is still talking about NFTs as though all of the use for NFTs is purely in the collectibles market, and and I don't think that's the case. So one no, example, I'm saying the perception yeah. of the of the public is that that's what NFTs are, and that most of the people who are espousing the virtue of NFTs are attributing it to that market, and so that makes it important to discuss in that framework. Yeah, and I, I think I would agree with you that I don't see that framework as being the most compelling case. Look, if uh, Ether is ripping right now, ETH is now, um, you know, it's up about 15x on the year, trading over 2,000 right now. But that's not specifically. Uh, it's it's it, it's um, you know 2107 right now. I keep forgetting that we're doing this live. We can actually quote live prices. It's super fun. Yeah, uh, I know, Ash, I just want to say. So the the dollar right now is trading at about one uh, 2100th ETH. That's how I think about it. <laughs> yes, I'm sure you do. Jack. Uh, and the market cap, by the way, is up to uh, 242 million. So it's roughly a quarter of a billion dollars. That's a claim on the future. That's not a claim necessarily on uh, you know the digital howdy duty space. Uh, that is that is a claim on on the on the network itself. But I'll give you a use case that I think is incredibly interesting. And, and it's something that Mark Cuban has talked about with regard to the Dallas Mavericks, uh, which is the use case for NFTs and ticketing. Um, I've talked about this before on the program, but just for people who haven't seen it. So there's that moment uh, when you go and uh, we would never do this, Max, I know, and I know Jack wouldn't, but if you go up to Yankee Stadium and you scalp a ticket uh, in the parking lot of Yankee Stadium and you buy that ticket, uh, you know, you hand a guy you've never met before a hundred bucks. Uh, he hands you this ticket and you think, oh, well, I hope this wasn't something that he printed in his basement. And there's that anxiety that you feel from the time you buy the ticket to the time you give it to the guy uh, who's taking the ticket at the, at the gate uh, when you walk in. And then you breathe a sigh of relief because it was, in fact, genuine, hopefully. Um, yeah. when, when Yankee Stadium starts using NFTs to do their digital, but they already have digital verifiable tickets that are right. centralized. Like, I can buy a ticket on my phone, and you could very easily create a centralized app or for scalpers, like that's the Yankee Stadium scalper app, and they want to they want a, a thriving secondary market for their tickets, and you know the Yankees can build their app. Like why? Well, the history, why not? history. Well, because the history of these networks is that open networks generally outperform uh, closed networks. It's the history of TCP/IP. Uh, it's the history of the internet, uh, and in, and it's the history of the banking system. If you think of fixed messaging and SWIFT. Uh, open networks tend to outperform because they're able to generate collaborators. They're generally able to create a greater degree of service through the creation of new products and services, uh, and they're able to broadcast the economic uh, incentive structure to any participant or member of the network. And that is the case, uh, in a nutshell, for why that would be the case. Well, why can't I NFT my fake ticket? That's what I'm saying. Like, the, If the Yankees, a centralized entity, Right. Is still putting out the tickets, then there has to be some verification. Like there's still an entity which is putting out those Yankees tickets. So that's what I'm saying. Like right. if there's a decentralized right. place where people can NFT their tickets to verify them, the Yankees still have to be in on that. There is still right. a truth machine coming from the centralized aspect of it. So that's where I don't see well, the well, case. I think it's. A, I think it's a, guys, I guys, guys. Sorry, I got to interrupt. I we're. we're we're getting the uh, the tap on the shoulder to to end this, but I, we can talk a little longer. But I just want to let you guys know that we're we're getting we're getting the tap. Um, but Ash, I want to ask you like 
when um, this NFT was sold of you, right. you own your own image. The image I probably was taken by one, one of our video editors. Right. Um, person who made the NFT, I don't believe paid you or paid that person. Anyway, right. I, I, I forget the guess the guy, the person who did that. And, you know, John I, I have a lot of, yeah, there we go. That person. Yeah. But Ash, the reason that they get the money is because you're okay with that. If you said, oh, hey, actually, I'm my own likeness. Like, is that disputed? Is that resolved over, over Ethereum, over the blockchain? Yeah, look, these are all open questions. And the reason why it's just fun and silly is because it's $390 and not $390 million, which point where we would probably have lawyers involved. So it is very early. I think of these as kind of like active uh, test cases, testing in production, alpha uh, production, whatever you'd like to call it. Uh, but to Max's point, I think I think you know, you, you raise some good points here. I would probably say that the, the asset itself is independent of the network, so you can have one authorized user who creates uh, the NFT ticketing, uh, and then the network is distributed. And so uh, I'm, I'm not sure that the use case as you frame it is, is exactly the way it would correspond uh, to, to the implementation. But look, these are, these are real questions, and I, I often, um, I think it's worth remarking that just the, the general trajectory uh, that these markets are tending in uh, is toward these decentralized and open networks. And I think that's really where the future is. And I think that's a lot of where the excitement is. And look, you know, for me, uh, and maybe this is a good place to, to wrap it up here, uh, the point that really I think is, is most uh, salient here and most compelling is that you have some of the smartest people in the world, young men, young women, uh, who are involved in this space because they see the promise. Now, people who are outside the space People who were uh, skeptics about the internet, for example, and believe me, there were many of them uh, in the late 90s. I remember people saying, I just don't have any use for this. Why do I need an internet connection? Um, the reality is uh, that the future is being created by the people who have uh, the vision uh, to figure out the ways of implementing and using the technology in a way that adds value to people's lives. And I'm quite bullish on that future. I imagine that's the direction that we're going in. And I, I expect to see more of it. And I expect to see more successes, uh, along with some bubbles of silly things that don't make any sense blowing up. I think it's a fair assessment, Ash. So Jack, are we are we wrapping here? Are we like done with the show? Are we reaching that point where we have to go? Uh, I mean, I guess yeah, so. I've, yeah, I've got to write, I have to write some copy and it's Friday night. <laughs> yeah, I'm going downtown, Ash. Nice. Yeah. Um, so anyway, let's uh, let's just come to a little bit of a, of a framework here for talking about some of the things that we've discussed. What are your final thoughts about this, Jack? You came in here, obviously, you've been doing a lot of thought uh, on uh, the bond market, on what's happening uh, with uh, with the, the uh, jobs report today, uh, with the broader context of macro policy uh, and U.S. markets. What are your final thoughts that you'd like to leave our audience with? I think I would leave the audience with the thought that economic growth, the economy doing well. Yes, that, that obviously is great for the real economy and real people, but different assets respond differently to it. Uh, Risk-off assets like bonds actually perform well when the economy is not doing so well. And when I'm talking about bonds, I'm talking about treasuries. Um, likewise, secular growth stocks like Facebook, Apple, or, or whatever, they perform decently well on a relative basis when the economy does not perform well. It's the you know, cyclical stocks that are really dependent on the economic cycle. And because the economy is doing super well, uh, they, they right now are ripping at the expense of bonds, at the expense of growth stocks. So that's something to uh, keep in mind going forward. Yeah, very well said. Max, final thoughts. And tell us a little bit uh, about what you're working on uh, today and how people can get access to it, uh, some of the interviews that you were talking about earlier. Um, 
Well, you know, Jack kind of covered too much. I mean, the market was closed today. Yeah. You know, we have a we have a long weekend. There's more to life than markets. Um, so everybody should, you know, enjoy the break when they come. Um, unless you're a crypto nut and you're just trading that 24 hour a day market, you know, more power to you. Um, but in, yeah, in, in which case we hope you come and sign up for real vision crypto immediately. Yes, exactly. But yeah, on, on real vision, uh, all the interview that I was mentioning with Mike green, um, is live on real vision today. There's another interview with Mike green coming out on Tuesday, which is really interesting with Marco, um, Papich. And they are looking at, at geopolitics and some trades to play some of the geopolitical tensions. That's very interesting. You know, a lot of conversations about geopolitics don't always include the trade that goes along with it. So I was uh, pretty excited to see that and actually not finished with it myself. And then, yeah, the Marcus Frampton interview is on Real Vision. And then, as Ash said, I, I mostly work on Plus, Real Vision Plus. So a lot of the live streams that we do at Real Vision are actually for our, our premium subscribers. And, uh, you know, it, that's a lot of fun getting to interact with our, our premium members because, you know, they've really invested in themselves. And I can tell by their questions and the type of stuff they engage with. So that's that's really what I like. And, and we're pretty fortunate to have um, such a great audience. So. Very well said, Jack, Max, thanks for joining us. Have a good weekend, everyone. Thank you. Thank you, Ash. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com.